Namo tassa bhagavato arhato sama sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arhato sama sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arhato sama sambhutasa Uttam dhamam sankham saam Pierre asked me on the, on the driving in from the monastery how I felt coming back to Ottawa now that I live out in Perth. And, you know, I spent nine years here in the Glebe. And it was very nice. It's very nice to be with practitioners and friends who I've gotten to know over the years. And so, like offering something up, I go, what's to say, really? Same old, same old. Mm-hmm. Work with the mind. So I just kind of think, well, how can I encourage you to um, to be engaged in this kind of work and encourage you in a in a in a practice which is it's not easy. I, I've never found meditation or monasticism something that's easy. And then, of course, if it was easy, maybe I wouldn't have had the friction that I need for for growing and becoming stronger. And I do feel very good about my life in this way. <clears throat> And I'm just kind of reflecting back when I when I started uh, in the monastery. I had no idea what I was getting into. Absolutely, it's just some kind of karmic energy. It wasn't me that got ordained. That's for sure. Something else drove me to go to Thailand. I didn't, you know, this was 1973, and so I'd met an American monk in India. And he inspired me to become a bhikkhu. And he disrobed. So we're going to go to Calcutta together. And he disrobed. Now what do I do? <laughs> so I went to Switzerland. I worked in Switzerland six months. So now I've got to go for it. So I go to Thailand. No internet. The only thing I knew was that there was a Western monk in Chiang Mai. I didn't know where Chiang Mai was. So I got to the airport in Bangkok. And I said, where's Chiang Mai? And I got a ticket to go to, train ticket to go to Chiang Mai. And uh, then the first Thai word I learned was Praferong, which is Western monk. And I walked around Chiang Mai for three days, Praferong, Praferong, <laughs> Praferong. And I found one, a German monk, and it was Santitito. And he took me to Bangkok and I got ordained. Now what was that about? Mm-hmm. Um, like, I can't, I can't take credit for that. There was something else, right? There was some kind of other energy going through me. You know, it was so culturally off the wall what I was doing. My parents thought I was off the wall. Um, it's just, and if you would have told me I'm going to be religious, give me a break. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's just like so, so different and so mysterious, I suppose, huh? mysterious. And so we have, you know, we have these ideas of karma and resultant karma, which are inexplicable. I don't have any, I don't have any psychic abilities or I've never seen past lives and so I haven't got a psychic bone in my body. Certainly I've met monks who seem to have those kinds of powers. But one does get a feeling that there's something bigger going on. Something, some kind of, some energies that go through us which are maybe not simply my creation. And I think that perspective I find helpful that 
be it the negative or positive things that come into consciousness for me, um, have some kind of formulation beforehand. I'm not the author of this. I don't sit down in the morning and, and write the text for the day. I don't, I don't kind of figure out what time I'm going to do what, what kind of emotions are going to come up, who I'm going to meet, and what kind of situations I'll be in. And that, that sense of mystery, I think, I, li- I kind of like that. That sense of really, I'm not, not being sure, not really knowing. And yet my mind likes, likes conclusions. It likes to uh, overanalyze, probably like all of us. Huh? It's a common problem in the West, the problem just the way we're conditioned. I uh, think a lot, make conclusions. Probably the most difficult thing I have, and maybe all of us, just to to observe a moment without commentary, you know, without making a critical remark about it, or a descriptive remark, or a, uh, a memory remark, or uh, just 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 the kind of pure pure experience of this present moment. It's it's very elusive. It's very sim- it's the simplest thing you could imagine, right? This moment as it is, as it presents itself, and yet, why is that? Why is it so elusive? You know, you find that in meditation, don't you? I suggest you, well, just feel the heat in your body. Simple. And yet the mind just keeps tripping out into commentary and thought and analysis and memory and, and, and all the rest of it. And yet it's in that holding of the mind in the present moment without any references to the past or any leaning to the future where the deepest peace is found. And that's hard to do. I think I found it hard. I think everyone does. And yet, you know, that, that, that's not, it's not beyond our, our, our capabilities. At any given moment, we can do that. You know, I can, I can just listen to the kids playing, and without making comment, just know, this is the way it is now. It's just this way. And that's one of the elements I've often... Um, one of the elements that's fundamental to my own practice is, is, is this sort of relationship to chronological time. Um, that for me, the, the aspiration that I'm involved in as a Buddhist monk is the aspiration to, the, to realize, the, as I often say here, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unborn, peace, the island Nibbana. To the ways that we talk about the Buddha's realization, and I've always felt that the can, that can, you know that it cannot be a, a future thing. That if it's a future thing, then that's something that is born. So if I if I take that statement that the Buddha makes, there is the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unformed, the island, and that's a a, a deep statement, really. And that's a, that's how he talks about his his spiritual experience. And I think, and I ponder that, and that's where I can use pondering. I see, well, that, and I, you know, I've touched things like that, which seem to be timeless. Um, then it can't be about moving to the future. It can't be about becoming. So that whole idea in Buddhism about non-becoming is very important for me. You find it in the Four Noble Truths as the um, craving to become, bhavatana, for those of you familiar with that formulation. Um, so, so the, the sort of analysis of time then brings you to a kind of conclusion that my spiritual, the kind of really depths of spirituality that we can 
discover, and I think it is kind of a discovery, is by being totally dedicated to the present moment. But not in a way of just controlling the present moment. And that's one of the mistakes I think I made early on, and probably all, all of us have maybe in Buddhism, is that the attempt to control the present moment, to stop the mind from thinking, to just somehow grab this present moment and hold on to it for dear life, is not really a, a life of freedom. It's a life of kind of enslavement to the present moment. So I, I used to count count the number of, of um, people who put rice in my bowl, or I count the number of spoons of rice that I ate, or I count the number of footsteps I, I, I would do in meditation, and so on. And that kind of brought me in the present moment. And I thought, it's just me doing something. It's me just filling up the mind with something which is, doesn't seem to be very, very free. So, so, so the challenge you know, becomes like, how can I stay in the present moment and not preoccupy, preoccupy myself with the objects of the present moment? Because as long as I'm preoccupied with any object, sound or sight, that's a changing thing. It's always arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing. Um, and the addiction that we have, I think, as human beings, we're always preoccupied with the non-spiritual. And we need to be, to some extent. We, you know, some, someone needs to vote the next government into power, or out of power, or whatever <laughs> power is going to go, or whatever. I mean, someone has to take the garbage out, and, and, uh, uh, <laughs> and all the rest of it. So, so contemporary life involves objects. But the, 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 the fallacy of the objective, the fallacy we have around the objective world is to think we can get it right. Somehow we can get all the ducks lined up and everything's going to be okay. And it never does, does it? You know, you're just, just kind of getting everything together and you get laid off. You get everything together and you get, you know, something else happens or someone dies. And then, so you begin to see that either this whole life is a bummer, right? And you're gonna, I'm just going to maximize pleasure as much as I can, which I think most of us tried. Or you kind of think, well, isn't there, is there a dimension in all of this business of being a human? Is there a dimension I'm missing? And I think that's what, the, that's what appeals to me about the Buddhist teaching, is he's saying, you're missing something here. And, 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 and you're not noticing something. And what are you not noticing? is that there's the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unborn, the deathless. And how do I realize it? And the Buddha says, well, live a good life. He doesn't say, like, rob banks, right? And cheat on your in-laws, and um, embezzle money from whatever, and get drunk, and realize the deathless. He says, no, lifestyle is very important. Good living is very important. So I'm very fortunate that I, I, live, a, I live a very fortunate life that I've had a, a life of um, I haven't hurt people but morally I've tried to live responsibly so I have no no regrets or no no heavy things which weigh on my mind you know, things that I've done which are hurtful to others or myself so there's a certain freedom there there's the freedom from living a good life and so much of much of Buddhism that's pitched to, to lay people is, is about ethics morality not killing not stealing and so on but I find most most folk that hang out with us are pretty good. You know, it's like probably best in the planet. They're yeah. perfect. Most of us are. They're, they're, most of us don't have a moral problem. We have a self disparagement problem. 
that I find I find just the quality of people that, that come and talk to them are very very have a lot of integrity, a lot of uh, yearning to be good people. But that's important. That's important. But then, the, how do you how do you develop this capacity to to be present to the way things are without commentary? To not lean forward into the future with trying to get something or rely on something from the past. This kind of beautiful, beautiful, beautiful stillness, stillness of the mind. And that's what we're, we're attempting to do in in the meditative life. This kind of lovely stillness, which we can train the mind into if we, at the time, I realize the university has started, professors are getting stressed out, and, uh, and so on and so forth, so life can be very, very stressful, but uh, stress is always objects, isn't it? And the objects take over our lives. So somehow, how can I, how can I create for myself a lifestyle in which this capacity and ability and opportunity to be very still in the present moment without commentary. Can I do that? Can I develop a lifestyle around that? And people ask me, how can I do that? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I didn't know how to meditate when I became a monk. I never done a retreat. Uh, my moral precepts were shoddy, but I never killed anyone. <laughs> you know, I, was, I never robbed a bank, so, so <laughs> I wasn't the best specimen. But it is important, you know, whatever. And that's where lay people, that's where you can help each other, kind of to, to have groups, to have sitting groups, to have ways where you encourage each other. Nature. But just, just contemplate that. that just to, to even, even in your meditation, to not try to get anything. To not try to uh, s- solve any problems. To not try to get any insights. This is a great... Um, ha- um, predicament for monks. You know, we get all this very high, high-minded talk about attainments, and then monks ask, how long have you been a monk? What have you got? <laughs> Don't ask, please. <laughs> so there's kind of a sense you have to attain something, you have to get something, you have to acquire something. But that's time-bound. That's very, very much time-bound. Memory, memory is time-bound. But I can know, I can know memory as an object. I can know commentary as an object. I can know my leaning forward to try to get something as an object. And the more I do that, the more I do that, then I sort of get off my toes, back on my heels, and begin to really settle in the present moment. And that, to me, that's the, that's the central core of the med- meditation you do. Uh, even, even if your experience is like very um, restless. I was just talking with someone at the monastery that's just about to, wanting to learn meditation, kind of 50-ish. And, and, and I think back to my, my first experiences of attempting to meditate. Oh, it's just, just difficult. And knees are up in the air and sitting on concrete floors and, and long sittings, you know, two, three hours. And, and, uh, and once, I, I once even got a boil on my bum. <laughs> boil on your bum? No, you don't want that. But three hours sitting, so kind of a lot of torture, really torture. And yet... And yet Ajahn Chah wasn't asking me to be peaceful. He, you know, he said, no, just, this is the way it is now. This is what pain feels like. This is what heat feels like. And when I, when I was in it, I thought, oh man, I'm never going to make this. And yet what he was doing for me was putting me in a situation where I had to learn how to be aware through all objective experience. Right? Through all objective experience. Uh, listening to a, a, a Dharma talk, one of the, uh, you know, 
Ajahn Chah was teaching a lot then. Later on, he got quite sick, but he would he would give one talk which went from nine till three, <laughs> nine at night till three in the morning. <laughs> that was the longest. And we had we had a um, we had a ritual where we do the Patimoka, our, our rules of recitation together every fortnight, which we'll do tomorrow. And one monk recites it, and then Ajahn Chah would give some reflections. And usually it was an hour. And then by that time, it was around 12, and we'd sit up till, till dawn. And at 12 o'clock, the coffee came. And I, I mean, we didn't get stuff like that very often. So in this particular talk, Ajahn Chah is uh, talking, 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 talking. And I'm, you know, after half an hour, my concentration's gone. I can't understand the tie. And all I think is, well, coffee. <laughs> so so he's, he's, they had me this big kettle. We had about 50 monks in big, big kettles, you know, steaming kettles, and three kettles were brought in by the layman, popped on the floor, no one's listening to Ajahn Chah. <laughs> looking at the coffee, and he was fearless, and he just kept talking, and talking, and talking, and talking, and never saw the coffee, until three in the morning. Now that sounds like torture, right? And, but because one respected his strength, what was he doing? He was saying, well, this is the way it is now. What's the problem? I mean, what's the problem? <laughs> it's obvious. I can get my coffee. You won't be quiet. Um, so, and he would keep, you know, he keep very, very simple kind of uh, themes. So this is the way it is now. Why are you suffering? And 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 because it was kind of repeated, the same patterns again and again. After a while, you say. Like you, if you're going to do this as a lifetime, you better sort this out, because he's going to keep—he's not going to stop for you. Uh, and you just begin to see. Well, it's, but it, where's, the, where's the real problem here? Where's the problem? It's discomfort. Yeah, okay. Oh, I don't want the discomfort. And you begin to see. Well, there's physical pain. There's discomfort. There's heat. There's boredom. And there's all my rabbiting mind around that. And what if I? What if I just start to be? with the way things are. That's somebody's encouraging us. Just be the way, this is this, this way. This feels this way now. I just it too. Just this way. But I don't want it this way. <laughs> I want to go meditate. You know, well, what's meditation? Getting on my back and having a coffee. And, <laughs> and so he, he, would, he would create these situations where I was sure he was having a go at me. He wasn't. He was just creating a situation where we weren't comfortable. And one of the ways he tried to teach us was through frustration. People would come and say, what's your technique? What's, what's, do you, do you anaparasati, mindfulness of breathing? Do you metta practice? Body sweeping? No, he says, my technique is frustration. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he'd be very jolly about it. He wasn't like vicious. Or he'd just be chuckling away. He was a very strong, very strong meditator. So you kind of listening, listening, and then you know you kind of this aversion comes up and the boredom, and then after a while you start to know, yeah, he's teaching me something. Why am I suffering? Well, it's because I don't want this moment to be this way, and that's the attachment to the objective world, right? That was he was teaching us that the objective world is this way now. Where's the problem? I'm not going to kill you. You get fed tomorrow. <laughs> right? You can have a bath. 
You can leave any time you want. No, no one was, there's a kind of sense of, strong sense of honor just to stick it out. And, and these men were very strong. And so that kind of sense of honor would come up. Well, yeah, I'm not going to leave. What's the problem? And, and beginning just to see the difference between discomfort and the desire not to have discomfort. Again and again and again and again and again. You know, that's, that was the power, I think, of that training, was the repetition. Just a repetition of once again, here he goes. And here it goes, it's hot season again, or here it goes, and uh, I can't stand this another minute. Oh, there's another minute. <laughs> it goes by. And you begin to, begin to see that, that my positive karma was to be there, but my negative karma was that I had no, no patience. I wasn't strong. I was weak. I was a weak person. I wasn't weak in a, in a kind of cowardly way. I was, you know, I had, I had sort of oomph to go for it, but I didn't have the strength of patience. I didn't have the strength of patience. And, and why is that important? Well, because the objective world is uncomfortable, oftentimes. It's both beautiful and not beautiful. It's both comfortable and uncomfortable. And he was trying to teach us the kind of the, the way to be with the, with, the, with the things that we usually run away from, or we blame, or we get angry about. Just learn to be patient more. And that's what he kept saying to me. Just You need to endure Viradhamma. You need to be more patient. And what could he say? Now, the, the, what I noticed, like the other monks, they're from farming families, they're very, very strong, very strong people. They could really endure a lot of heat and a lot of pain. I could have clever opinions about how we should change it. Mm-hmm. You know, I could have clever ideas. And he would say, you just think too much. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I just, that was, such a, that's, that was such a helpful thing for him to do to me, not to me, to, for all of us. You know, to, for a teacher to sit there and feel the aversion of 50 men. Because <laughs> we're all this, you know, we're all one out of there. And he's just, talk, 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 talk. just like, you know, it's just, it was a very kind thing to do. And then after a while, so that's what he's doing. He's creating frustration so that I can understand desire and the end of desire. That's very compassionate. I can't do that. I don't have the courage with my monks. I just want to keep him happy. <laughs> that character, that kind thing to do. So frustrations come in life, don't they? And how do you? How does one give meaning to frustration? So one wouldn't wish frustration on anyone, but certainly life is full of it. Not getting what you want or getting what you don't want, and and bringing up the dharma that way. You know, making making conscious the dharma then gives meaning to things like frustration. It's not just about frustration. It's about the objective world grabbing my attention, preoccupying my mind, and, and, and um, my inability to keep spacious so that I can realize the unconditioned. So my mind is attached to the conditioned. This is the idea. The conditioned realm with its pleasures and pains is not wrong. It's very beautiful at times. Uh, this you know, September, it's like... Canadian gaga weather, isn't it? Oh, it's a lovely roll walking around the mall. Oh, it's so beautiful, no bugs, warm. Which is fine, enjoy it when you got it, kind of thing. But, but the objective world can never, never fulfill us. Which is not a kind of Buddha's wet blanket theory. It's just saying, check out this other possibility, the unconditioned. 
So when we're always, when our, when our minds are preoccupied with the conditions, so in this case I'm preoccupied with discomfort or heat or boredom with that situation, my mind hasn't got the freedom to be still, to notice the unconditioned. So the Najan Shah creates this environment for us, and we struggle through, and we begin to say, oh, desire feels this way. It's not about him talking. It's not about the pain in my knees and so on. It's about the desire to have pleasure. Nothing wrong with pleasure, but now I haven't got it. So do, am I going to disrobe so I can get some more yogurt or something? <laughs> Probably other things I could be doing. So no, no, I'll, I'll hang in and I'll watch this. And begin to see desire, and then the discomfort. And I say, oh, desire isn't... The discomfort isn't desire. That's something else. Discomfort is just sensation, pressure. But the desire, that's something I can notice as an object of mind. And once I begin to see the desire as an object of mind, I begin to incline to the deathless, or to the unconditioned, because now I'm not just fooled by the conditioned realm. As long as I was always running towards conditions and running away from conditions, so I was traveling, I traveled for three years, I went through uh, Europe, I went to North Africa, I went across Turkey all the way to Pakistan, and you know, all kind of interesting stuff and so on. And, and, but always moving and doing and, and absorbing, and it was good for a young guy to do, but, uh, but never, never still, always into the next event, right? Which, I'm glad I did it, I'm glad I did it. But then you get to the monastery, what's the next event? It ain't going to be interesting. Because <laughs> it's the same event that happened yesterday. <laughs> so you kind of hit this wall of, oh, there's nowhere to go. I don't know if family life is like that, or vocation or whatever, but, but just that sense of not going anywhere with this, just being with this now, nowhere else to go. And then seeing, like, like for me, the conditioning of having traveled for three years was, I was restless, really restless. I just want to do something. And he said, yeah, then, then meditate. God, how much more meditation can you do? And walking back and forth, and walking, and just watching the restlessness and the frustration, the restlessness, restlessness, until mindfulness. Oh, that's just restlessness. Oh, I know that one. And begin to dissociate, not dissociate, but now I no longer identify with the, the narratives and storylines of the restless and see that, oh, that's a bodily energy. That's a type of object. Oh, yeah. So it's not just the objects like the fan or the sound of the kids playing outside. There are the mental objects too, aren't there? There are the frustrations and their emotions. And they, they're not who I am. They come and go. And that kind of slow insight, for me at least, I don't know about you, slow dawning that it's not about my emotional life, and yet it is. And it's about my emotional life in the way that I get caught up with it. How can I not get caught up with it? So just, just like in my first first year, I had so much anger. I was just like burning up with anger. And uh, frustration, I go to Ajahn Smedo, and I try to do metta bhavana, may all beings be well, may all beings, I hate them. <laughs> And he said, yeah, don't worry, just swear. Just walk up and down and swear for 20 minutes. Oh, I thank you. <laughs> and, you know, we know that now, don't we? You know, and I did. I just, no one heard me. 
And then I said, oh, this is what anger feels like. <laughs> and I said, well, that's just an object. Anger's just an object. Oh, I see. And slowly, slowly, the, 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 the sense of presence becomes stronger. Not because we, we, we uh, get anywhere. Because presence isn't getting anywhere, is it? It's just, it, it kind of dawns on you. The whole spiritual life is about being, being here now. Ramdas's kind of thing. That book was around then. Um, and the more, the more I found that I could be with fear, I could be with these negative things, then I began to recti- um, process that karma, that, that kind of, the karmic results of an untrained mind. Like the amounts of fear I felt as a, as a, as a meditator, just ridiculous amounts of fear, which didn't make, make any sense from my life, but there it was. So I could say it's some kind of karmic momentum, but it was certainly powerful, powerful. But just like having to endure that all the time is an unpleasant experience, but all the time what's happening is one's inclining to the unconditioned. By being with fear, I didn't realize it at the time. I didn't understand that, but and my teacher just hang in there. Just be patient, be patient. By being patient with fear, I wasn't running away from that condition. I wasn't seeking a compensation with another condition. I was with the conditioned as it was, and I, that meant I was inclining to the, towards the unconditioned because I was no longer distracted or lost in it. Whereas before, fear would be just a way of, of, of creating a personality and then running, running with that fear, which always kept me preoccupied. But now, fear is just an object. And the more we can get to know all conditions as just their objects that come and go, mental conditions, physical conditions, social, whatever it is, we begin to incline to the unconditioned by not attaching to the conditions. And it's always there. You know, it's always, it's always available. That's the, the, the beauty of it. Once we get a taste for that, we, we, I, we, we get, I think we get the sense that is like timelessness becomes important. It's not about me becoming a different kind of a person. No, it's about me knowing just personality rising and ceasing and trusting, trusting in this pure awareness, just this way, and that's hard to do. That's hard to do because I don't know about you. My mind, you know, it loves to comment on about things, but just to to feel what you feel without commentary, without judgment, without without the need to announce, without the need to say anything, and you begin to appreciate what silence is about. Silence is a, isn't about the suppression of thought. Silence is about the the limitations of commentary, the um, the futility of commentary, I'd say, because the unconditioned is not a comment. You, can, you cannot, you know, any, any, anything you describe, the unconditioned is conditions, big and small, is it this, is it that, but to actually listen to the sound of the fan, feel the heat, with no commentary. You have to be very, very present, very present. Elements from the past come in. How do they come in? I don't know about you. You've probably read a lot. Me as a monk, I've read about, you know, monks who attain things. I've read about stages of enlightenment, stages of um, samadhi, absorption. So you have all this information in the back of your mind, which is now making a commentary. Do this. Don't do that. Too much of this. A little bit more of that. Mm Yeah, a little bit further. Is it going well? Oh, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> so there's this little voice commenting, which is self-view. 
there's a me, and there's my meditation, and there's this little coach going on. Right? Sometimes it's not such a little coach. And that, that's, the sense of, that's an object. That's still an object. So you say, well, that very thought is an object. And what to do? Do nothing. <laughs> this is hard. I mean, this is where it gets to. Not right away, like, like I won't say do nothing to a bank robber. I'd say, you know, do precepts. But I think, I think like I, I introduced the, this meditation, I, the counting meditation, counting backwards. It's an oldie and goldie. They're quite good. You know, just count backwards. Why did I say 55? Why not? Because I just want to see if someone thought it was an esoteric number. <laughs> People will do that. <laughs> but but you, can't, you, you don't want to do that for a lifetime, do you? You know, the spiritual life isn't about counting your breaths back. <laughs> so it might get you in the present moment. And, and why I think I, I talked about that is I think all of us, because you know, many of us have been practicing for quite a long time, we, we go from like really obvious techniques, right? And we try obvious techniques and we go for that. And after a while we get to sense there's too much of me in this. There's too, uh, there's too much of me doing something to become something. And that becomes inappropriate. That becomes ineffective. That becomes uninteresting, I think. And because we begin to say, well, who's this me doing this anyway? And then maybe we question it, but you can't get there with thought. And we begin to notice the very sense of a me doing a something. That's an object, too. That's an object that's arising and ceasing. And we, we slowly incline to much more subtle ideas about do nothing. Stillness. You know, your, your, your language or your your voice becomes very, very minimal until you realize, yeah. <laughs> don't say anything, don't say anything, just, just allow this moment to reveal it. And, 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 and there's a kind of faith that arises in the meditative life, a faith that the path will be discovered if you just leave it alone, if you can come to this silence, if you can come to this, just let it, let, it, let it work itself out, don't get in there. Don't try to figure it all out, sort it all out. But the kind of controlling mind, the commentary mind, comes from the past with its ideas and tries to move to the future with its conclusions. That's why doubt is so, so, so such a tricky um, hindrance and, and fetter. We, it's both a hindrance and a fetter in, for those who know the, the kind of uh, language of, of, of Buddhist psychology. But, but doubt is is a very tempting object because doubt is uncomfortable you know because why is it uncomfortable because we like we like thought we like analysis we like a conclusion and doubt is necessary so if if uh, there's a really loud sound of someone crying outside and we hear that we don't just sit here doubt ah they're killing me doubt we go out there and do something we act on it obviously but doubt also is a very insidious kind of preoccupation with thinking. And, and I often talk about this, is that the beauty about doubt is it can create any thought, any question. And you, 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 you get kind of sucked into thinking you have to have an answer. You know? uh, and and that's, a, that's a fallacy, because you won't realize the unconditioned through thinking. It's not a conclusion. So doubt... For us, but you know, many of us have been. You know, we like to read. We use our intellect a lot, 
when a, when a kind of question comes up, am I doing this right? We don't see that as just a thought. And just trust that if we let go of the thought, there's an intuition which will feel the way to more peace and more stillness. We don't tend to trust that. So the doubt comes up and we say, I don't know, maybe, maybe I should do metta or... I'll ask the Ajahn. And he asks me, I say it's doubt. It's just doubt. What do you mean doubt? I don't understand. What do you mean doubt? It's just doubt. It's just a, just a awful... But, and they want an answer. They want me to give an answer. And I won't. <laughs> That's your problem. So, so the, 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 the limitations of intellect and thought are that, that like, thought can, can be a kind of a coach, like, right? Or it can be a, a, a... I think the best use of thought is to remind you of insight. So, for me, the kind of basic insight around time the way I use thought around that is non-anticipation and non-resistance. So I've, I've used that language just to pop into my mind pure awareness, pure awareness, pure presence. And that's just one thought. But even that, after a while, becomes me trying to do something, me trying to coach it. So can we come to the stillness of mind? I mean, it's a big pro, it's, a, it's not easy. And can we sustain the stillness of mind without this movement from past and future? And can we trust in that? Can we really kind of just give up to that and allow this path to reveal itself? Uh, if we can, then we are strong meditators. And it, takes, it takes quite a strong meditator to do that. If not, if, if our minds are always preoccupied with objects, that's what we look at. What, what was my mind always um, picking up and preoccupying? Can I not just be in the dental office and wait for the dentist and just know the way things are? Do I need to look at the, the magazine and absorb into something? It's simple things like that. Or, or uh, can I go for a walk or, and, and just uh, allow the sounds and smells and bodily feelings just to be the way they are? Or do I constantly make judgments and commentary and carry narratives around in my mind? Can I be with a person and just allow them to be what they are and without, you know, without critical faculty jumping in. The reading Lompal Liam's uh, No Worries, where he talks about his own enlightenment experience, and interesting, he says afterwards, this, after, the experience, well, after coming out of the, being in this, he said, and the result was that things were just the way they were. <laughs> and people were just the way they were, exactly the way they were. And life was just the way it was, just exactly the way it was. And I contemplated suffering, I didn't know what it was. I knew, I knew the books, they talked about dukkha, but I didn't know what it was. Well, that's interesting. You know, usually the enlightening is going to be a big shebang, right? Your head will blow open, and you know, you'll have like something, but he says, and, and life was just this way now. And you think about it, how else could life be? can only be this way, but it's so hard to be with life in this particular way it is. And so the, the, the Theravada way of, of um, practice, the way I see Theravada, Theravada Buddhism, is about non, non-becoming and letting go. The emphasis is on letting go. And that I've always helped find helpful, because I'm a, you know, I'm a 
your average greedy meditator. I want those experiences which I read about like anyone else. But Ajahn Chah said, no, 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 it's not about getting. Because getting is in time. Getting is about the future. And, and letting go is about now, here and now, being here and now. You know, there's a, there's a very famous um, um, video, probably on YouTube somewhere, um, uh, Buddha Comes to Sussex, when, when Ajahn Chah, uh, there was a, a presenter, uh, a producer who came to uh, Wapapong in Thailand in 1976, and he did a program called, uh, it was for the Open University, and they did a program, The Mindful Way, of Ajahn Chah's monastery. And then they did the same program, uh, another program, with, uh, when we started the monastery in West Sussex in 1979. And David, the producer, asks Lompo Cha, so what's the essence of Buddhism? And he says, Ploi Wang. And uh, the translator says, Ploi Wang means let go. Mm-hmm. And the, what do you mean, let go? Wang, he says, Wang, let go. <laughs> and then he has to explain it. And that's the simplest, that's the simplest uh, presentation of Buddhism, let go. But it takes, it takes a, 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 a real understanding of it, because you could say, well, letting go means I'm going to be irresponsible. I won't pay my mortgage, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll get speeding tickets and so on. Well, that's not it. Letting go is this attachment to conditions. And yet, being socially responsible. This is one of the things I've tried to learn as a monk, is I have a social responsibility, and yet let go of the conditions realm. You know, that we live in a, within social boundaries, and yet let go of the conditioned realm. And the conditioned realm is as it is. And the more we do that, the more we incline to the unconditioned. It only makes sense. And what draws us to the conditioned realm is pleasure and pain, and repels us. Pleasure and pain, pleasure and pain. So forbearance with the uh, displeasure, gratitude with pleasure, not demanding that it be either way, is a kind of pathway of peace and equanimity. All right, some food for thought. Questions, anyone? Yes, Christine. How would you say your evolution, like, was it smooth or did you have, yeah. like, a all the way? Not really. No, it's just like an attrition process. <laughs> I, I don't believe in that break. I, yeah, there are breakthrough insights. I think the way for me it's worked is like the insights around fear. I saw what the difference between fear and attachment to fear, but then I had to work with that insight for many years. And then, then yeah, that's the way I would say the pattern is, you, you, you know, I have some some manner of grasping the conditioned realm. So for me, let's say fear. And then I struggle and try to get rid of it, and then I say, oh, I don't want the fear. I want to get rid of the fear. I have to welcome the fear. And that's easy to say, but I, didn't, I couldn't see it. I was so blinded by it. So then that's the insight, but then the karma of the fear was still there. But then the insight gave me the right way to work with it. So from then on, the fear begins to not be fueled anymore. And certainly there, you know, there are there are like powerful experiences that come. But more and more, it's more like just... Theravada, we say, it's like it's not like jumping off a cliff into the ocean. It's like a slow beach. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of one of the images in the, in the text. Yeah. 
Anything else? Really? Yes. Questions about the conditions concerning sleep. Uh -huh. So if you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep, what I want to do is create the conditions to go back to sleep. Right. Why? So that I can sleep. Why do you want to sleep? <laughs> Why do you want to sleep if you woke up? Well, that's my mystery. <laughs> so I lie there and I contemplate the mystery of why I'm waking up when there seems to be no sound, no noise, nothing. And yet I feel I should be going back to sleep, but I don't. And then the next day I'm tired of it. Yeah. So I get caught in this thinking about conditions, like, because is that trying to manipulate conditions or accepting it? Like, I don't, I don't kind of get the conditions in that. Well, like, if you're hungry, you got to eat. Right. Right? So you're going to manipulate those conditions and make yourself a sandwich. So that's natural, right? Um, so we, need, we live in the condition realm. We need to do what we need to do to live well. But this particular example is very interesting because I've been teaching a lot recently, lying meditation. Because mm -hmm. my knees are a bit crook, and uh, I've been very, uh, very pleased with the results from lying meditation. So I would suggest uh, that you assume maybe that you can get rest without being asleep. Mm -hmm. Maybe make that assumption. So your assumption is you wake up, you've only had your three hours, you think you need your eight. And so you condition your mind to think, gotta fall asleep. Right? Because there's a fear of being tired the next day, which is justified. Well, why don't you just try something else and say, when I wake up, I'll take to do yoga, shavasana, corpse posture, and establish that as, as a meditation posture. Mm -hmm. right? So get myself set up, or you can go out and brush your teeth a bit or wash your face or whatever, and, and actually set yourself up on the bed, on the mattress, and uh, wherever you find your hand, you know, and then set that posture, and then don't, don't make a determination not to move. Right? Make a determination not to move. And then you'll find that your, your mindset will be still towards, I've got to fall asleep. So when you feel discomfort, what will happen is you'll try to roll over on your side. Because that's where you go to the annihilation posture. And now you, you're going to try to, know, you try to notice that as an object the desire to go to sleep. And you notice that by being aware of the first, the first uh, hint of bodily discomfort. First hint of it. It's quick, quick. Right? And the first hint of bodily discomfort will take you to the desire to roll over. That's the way you're conditioned to fall asleep. So now you're using that very uh, bodily discomfort to establish mindfulness. Huh? And just try to lie there and see what happens. And, and um, take a day off work tomorrow. <laughs> but, but do experiment with this because uh, you, can, you can get a lot of rest. If you, if you, what you find in lying meditation is that because I think we're kind of con most people are conditioned to fall asleep on their sides, it's quite common, uh, lying there like that, your mind sometimes dips dips into a sleep state, because you're like that, you don't go to sleep, but you notice your mind dipping into a deep silence. It's very interesting, very, very interesting. 
your, your conditioned mind will say, this is no good, Ashina, but, but uh, try not to listen to that. Listen to your body, and then try to just come to an utter stillness in the body. Use the body, use the bodily form, and then see what happens. See what happens. Experiment with that. If you have bodily problems in general, and meditation and so on, um, use that posture when you feel refreshed. So let's say you've had your eight hours sleep, and you want to meditate, and you got half an hour or so on, go back to bed. And, and try, try, try to develop it. I think that's a very important posture to develop, because um, we're all going to be there soon. <laughs> and I notice your hair is like my color, so... Not today. Um, so it's actually, I think, it's not much talked about, the lying posture. And I talk to people, so I just fall asleep all the time. But it, it's, it's uh, if you can get that, th those are the principles for me, this deep stillness of, of, of not moving. And then the mind will sometimes just dip into deep silence. Right? And, and if, you, if you need to fall asleep, you fall asleep. Not a problem. But the mind which wants to fall asleep is a very restless mind. It's a very restless mind, and it, and it, you know, just moves around and agitates. Don't look at the clock. <laughs> you know, because as soon as you look at the clock, two o'clock, <laughs> you're already, you know, you're creating this kind of tension in your mind. So just like, let go and, and see, see. Well, when I've done that, it's been interesting in that there is a sense of peace, but I don't feel a dip. I feel a lift. Okay. Dip, lift, go for it. <laughs> it sounds good to me. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Yeah, Some kind of a yeah. peacefulness, yeah. And trust that that's very restful. You know, that's very, very restful. It's deeply restful. And maybe, maybe our calculation of eight hours is sort of, you know, maybe there are different, different ways to do it. But it seems to me, if you've woken up, that's a great opportunity. And, and see, are you really tired the next day? You know, like do it as an experiment. experiment. Yeah. Yes, please. Along the theme of um, letting go and dealing with strong emotions like fear, is there anything that you would suggest to work with grief? Grief. I, I, most things I work with a heart chakra. You know, to me, this is this is the kind of powerful center. First of all, just body awareness, right? Rather than narratives. So body awareness processes everything, as do narratives. Narratives sometimes don't process things. Both are necessary. So you have a narrative of grief and, and loss and so on, and one talks and relates to people through those narratives. But also, the body, the bodily um, centers and energy centers are also involved in that. And a way to um, engage those feelings of grief, in this case, without denying them any, without trying to do anything about them, in a kind of pure awareness way, is to, to move like to the heart chakra. And that's something I find very profitable. I've tried to do that for many years. So, um, just started to, you know, let's say there's a, a strong emotion of grief comes through you. And then that'll go, you know, to, to, to thoughts and ideas, and you say, "Oh, this is grief. Grief feels." And just bring your attention down away from the, the like when you're thinking, the 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 brain is like tensing. I don't know if you notice that meditation, but if you if you bring your attention, your consciousness down to your heart chakra, your brain relaxes, 
but you're not repressing anything. You're not denying its existence. And, and you know, strong feelings of grief are also strong feelings of love. You know, they're, they're, they're deeply loving feelings. So they, they kind of t get you in touch with love in a, in a way which might seem negative, but it's not. You know, it's a deeply loving feeling. And, and I think, for me, it just you have to experiment. But when there's, when there's anything deeply um, disturbing like that or, or, or powerful, you come to the heart chakra, you become more alive there because it's enlivened through that, through that, uh, that particular experience. And because you're, you're willing to abide there, not try to get rid of it, not try to resolve it or process, just, just be with it, then that center becomes more alive to other, other situations, situations which aren't maybe so meaningful, but the heart feels them. So in fact, with the lying meditation, that's what I do. I, uh, I, 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 when I, when I, as soon as the, I'm conscious, wait, then I, I, if I do that lying meditation, I, I lie in Shavasana, and then I go to the heart chakra, and that, that drops my mind, and then I hear the sound of silence. So, so it's a very, very powerful, I don't know what it's about, I'm not a, I've never studied yoga or anything, but it seems to me very, very important. So basically understanding oneself through the energy bodies, rather than just through thought, and ideas, and, and narratives. And, 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 you know, like those things, like welcoming them. They're, they're neither right nor wrong. And, and, and that kind of... The practices of welcoming, the loving practices, are very important to get beyond just the, the controlling, trying to figure everything out mind. And the more you can... I find, the more I can just be... Like be in a committee meeting from here. Right? That's a very good one for me. You're at a committee meeting. <laughs> And then not down here. I mean, I have to think sometimes. <laughs> but, but actually, like, I find there's no pressure in the brain. And the heart's very, very, like, in touch and, and responsive. And I can give answers and so on. So maybe see it like grief as an opportunity for, for becoming more alive. Or not that you're not, but becoming more aware of that. And then try to carry that awareness through in more mundane things. It's a tremendous... Um, way of relating to the world. And anytime you see beauty, like I saw, what did I see the other day? I was talking with one of the monks, and I saw this bird. I said, what's that? You know, when I see a new bird, there's another one. And there's ten of them. Look at them. And they look like swifts. And then I went to my books, and I said, it was a, a, a common nighthawk. And the nighthawks, and they're, actually up, they're going off to Argentina. That's what my book said. <laughs> and uh, it was beautiful and I just felt that in my heart in you know, the beauty of nature it can, it can open it that way and then, and then the, 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 like just the, the Syrian refugees it's heartbreaking but go there you know, go there like yeah this, is, this human condition is, is really and enliven that and, and that's a very very, very uh, important important place to learn to be conscious more and more. Alright? Shall we cash in our chips as we say? <laughs>